This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Hello. Good morning, Trinity Church. My name is Zach Lutz, as Ronnie has mentioned, Director of Family and Youth Ministries here at Trinity Church. And today we are continuing our sermon series on meeting Jesus and encounters with Jesus. And today our text has to do with a man who meets not just Jesus, but his king. And the problem with a man meeting a king in scripture is that we don't have very good categories for it. I mean, we live our lives in relative freedom with generally enough money and power in the world to leverage things to our advantage sometimes. We live in a democracy where, although not perfect, our views are often afforded representation. And so we have this great sense of freedom. But don't let this great sense of freedom trick you into thinking that you do not live in a monarchy. There is one king, and he has always been king, and he continues to be so. But the problem that we have is, what does that mean? If I, if I meet my king, if I meet Jesus, what exactly is supposed to change? So I would invite you to stand as I read God's word from Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, notice the response of the faithful versus Saul's response. Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the words of our king will stand forever. Please be seated. 
So Saul, on this journey to go arrest those who he thought were polluting his religion, met his king. And there are some fundamental things that changed in Saul when he met his king. And the first one has to concern his desire to be consistent between what he said he believed and how he acted on what he believed. You see, Paul held core convictions is the word that I'm going to use in here. And these core convictions we have to pick up from the understanding of Pharisaic Judaism. But these core convictions drove him to do everything that he did because, like all of us, he tried to be consistent with what he believed. And here's what he believed concerning his king. So he said, here's what my king is supposed to look like. He thought that before the king could come, the nation state of Israel at the time needed to be purified of all its uncleanliness. They needed to reform before they were fit for their king to come. That was the first thing. The second thing was that this ruler, this Messiah, this king could never be defeated. He would liberate this nation state from all of their enemies, which at the time of Saul was Rome, but all of their other enemies as well. They would be the top dogs. And third was that the resurrection would indeed happen, but that the resurrection couldn't happen until the king came, and the king couldn't come until Israel was purified. Now, these are just some of the convictions of Pharisaic Judaism, but these were the ones that really concern this story, because what happened when he was blinded by a light on the road was that he was faced with a king that broke all of his convictions. The interesting thing about Saul's convictions is that they were thoroughly biblical. Judaism, rightly practiced, leads to worship of the king, who is Jesus. But Pharisaic Judaism, at the time of Saul, blinded most to the king when he was there. But Saul, on this Damascus road, was confronted by the resurrected king of all creation. And when Jesus proclaimed, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he had no choice but to say, I was wrong. Saul was surprised by this king in primarily two ways. Jesus was doing something way better than Saul could have ever hoped. But he also did it in a way that was far more humble than Saul could ever accept. You see, Jesus was about more than simply liberating a nation state from the current political powers that be. He was about liberating his people from bondage to the evil one and death and suffering. Jesus was about a business that was reforming all of creation, not just reforming one small group of people. But the way that he went about it wasn't what Saul thought kings should be. Dying on a cross according to the Old Testament, is to be cursed. And his king couldn't be cursed. He had assumed that the resurrection that the disciples had talked about were fabricated, made up to keep this movement 
going. But confronted by the resurrected king, he now had to say, Jesus is the Messiah. And I was terribly wrong. He is going about things that I could have never imagined. He is bringing people into this family that I would have never accepted. He's doing something with me that I never would have accepted. You see, if the Messiah was supposed to liberate Israel from her enemies or God's people from her enemies, the greatest enemy of God's people once he sees the resurrected Jesus is now Saul himself. He knows that when Jesus showed up on that road, he should have been struck dead. And yet instead, his king says, rise, enter the city, I have a job for you. The first thing that happens when we meet our king, when you meet Jesus, is that your convictions must change. What's so shocking about Saul is I think sometimes we read this story and we think, oh, this is like a murdering drug dealer who then had a reform of life and then suddenly started worshiping Jesus. But actually, this is more like Pastor Ronnie, Pastor Jeff, or myself who have degrees in theological education but somehow missed Jesus. There's a danger for those of us who grew up in the church to expect too little of Jesus and to also be a little bit embarrassed about the way he goes about doing it. Jesus is so much greater than simply a spiritual self-help to get you through sleepless nights. It's not that he doesn't care about those things. He cares greatly. But he is doing so much more. He is so much greater than simple fixes to current political and socioeconomic strata, although he also cares deeply about those things. Jesus is about the reformation of the cosmos. But he goes about it in a way that is so humble that frankly it embarrasses us, and I mean it this way. I think one of the greatest questions that we have to ask is how could a good God allow so much evil and suffering? How can he be so long-suffering? I don't have time up here to answer this question fully, but one thing that the story of Saul is causing us to reflect on is suffering and wickedness and evil does not come out of thin air. It comes from me and it comes from you. Jesus' long-suffering and humility on the cross affords us something. It's so he can grab us by the face and say, I see those anxieties, I see those hurts, I see the injustices, I see all of the systemic problems that exist in this world, and I am fixing those, and I am fixing you. Your vision is a little too small. We have a king who defeated death by dying. And Paul would be about that for the rest of his life. Paul and Saul, they're the same guy. Sorry, I should have clarified that because I'm probably going to interchange those a lot. But Saul couldn't accept before meeting Jesus that Jesus would be so humble. 
So if our convictions must change, if we must come to grips every time we approach Scripture with the fact that Jesus is probably doing things much greater than we could have ever hoped, but also he's going about it in a way that is much more humble than we could have ever hoped, something else must necessarily follow suit, and that is our conduct. I don't know if you guys saw the movie Inception from Christopher Nolan about 2010. The plot of the story is roughly this. There's a thief who is usually tasked with stealing corporate secrets through the use of dream-sharing technology. So he can share a dream with people and convince them that he's a good guy, and then they hand over secrets, right? But in the movie, he's given the opposite task of instead of taking something to plant an idea, a conviction, so deep that it changes conduct in the life of a CEO. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus is coming in and manipulating us in such a way, but he is actually changing us profoundly. When Saul met his king, his conduct had to change. And the biggest way that you can see this is in verses 17 and 18. The very man he came to arrest is now the one calling him Brother Saul, and he accepts it. Because you've got to think, he had options. He could have said that those guys that were with him were going to guide him into the city and still find all of the people that he had letters for, round them up and take them back, and he could have been blind for the rest of his days. But his convictions had changed. And so his conduct changed. But there's an important thing to notice about Saul's conduct, and from this you'd have to look at the rest of his letters. So I'm going to summarize a little. Saul, at the beginning of this passage was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He was zealously persecuting. But by the time we get to his letters, we understand that he is being zealously persecuted. 2 Corinthians 11, has, he says this about the ways that he has suffered. Three times he was beaten with rods. He's been stoned, shipwrecked, spent a night and day in the open sea. He was constantly moving because he was in danger from bandits, Jews, Gentiles, danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. He often went without sleep. He knew hunger and thirst has often gone without food. He has been cold and naked. These were the kinds of persecutions that he endured. But although he was a zealous, traveling evangelist, for Pharisaic Judaism before, persecuting others. What happened after he met his king was that he continued to be a zealous, traveling evangelist, but in service of his king. And there's one other change that's very important, and you can find it in Philippians 3. It's that he counts all the other gain that he had as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. Instead of arrogantly assuming that he knew what the Messiah was supposed to look like, he humbly, yet zealously, evangelized as his king instructed him to do. He used his gifts in the humble service of his king. So when we're confronted with our king and our convictions changed and we're asked, well, how is my conduct supposed to change? I think some of us think, oh, I should be like Paul. I should pack up all my stuff. I should start making tents, even though I have no idea how to do it. I should travel around the world and start planting churches. And maybe that's what God has called for you. Maybe your gift set 
is called to do that. But I have a feeling that a majority in this room have various gifts. Maybe you're gifted at restructuring teams. Maybe you're gifted at encouraging people. Maybe you're gifted at listening. Maybe you're gifted at healing. Maybe you're gifted at art and music. See, what Jesus did with Saul on the road to Damascus is said, I am your king and I want you to use your gifts in my kingdom. And Jesus, the same king, looks at you and says, I want you to use your gifts instead of for self-service as a hobby, a way to pass time and just to earn a buck, to serve my kingdom to bring fruitfulness and beauty into this world, to bring healing to brokenness. He chose you. Exercising our conduct in this way is, is somewhat vulnerable, and, and it comes with some problems because I, I think that we, we try to define what the boundaries of the kingdoms are. I don't know if you guys remember, in, in John 10, Jesus calls himself the gate. He says that anybody that comes by in any other way it hasn't come by through him, and so they're not actually going to be kept. They're going to be expelled from the kingdom. And his point to his disciples was that he's the one who gets to determine who's in or out. There were many times that his disciples were like, hey, uh, this guy over here, he's, he's talking in your name. Like, are you sure you want that? Jesus is like, he's fine. Don't worry about it. Saul also thought he was a gatekeeper. Saul came to this passage and he said, Gentiles aren't supposed to come in yet. Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. He's like, it's not time. When the Messiah comes, then they can start coming in. I know my Old Testament. I know what it says. But he was wrong when he was confronted with his king and his convictions had to change. So Jesus had to show up, change that conviction. And then he's going to go on from this point forward in the story and start preaching to the Gentiles preaching that Jesus is king. Now, Ananias also thought he was a gatekeeper. However, he has an appropriate response because I, I think we all have this doubt because I think sometimes we look around and we look at what Jesus is doing in the world and we go, are you sure? This, this person? Like, are you, are you sure that these people are supposed to be here? Are you sure that these people represent who you are? And Ananias has the same question. He's like, Lord, don't you know who this guy is? Like, I'm, there's a good chance I'll die. Like, if I, if I go to this guy, there's a good chance I'll die. Are you, are you sure? But what I want you to notice is that instead of assuming that he knew what was best and, and acting in a way contrary to the Lord's command, he went back to his king and he said, my Lord, are you sure? And Jesus, in all the kindness and mercy, says, yes, I am sure. Go, I have a plan. We also think we're gatekeepers, as I've mentioned. We doubt our king through our actions and our speech. And there's a lot of different ways that I could take this, but I'd, I'd like to focus on just one, if you'd let me. And I, I think it's, it's the way we tend to panic. And I, stoicism is a pretty high virtue. I'm not saying it should be, but we try to like level our emotions a lot. And so when I say panic, sometimes it's not like we're all running around fire, but you can tell it in the way that we post on Facebook or social media or the way we grumble when certain campaign ads come on. 
There's silly ways that Christians panic, and sometimes we look back at them and laugh a little bit. We panic about Pokemon cards and Harry Potter, presidential elections, things that are happening in the world that cause us panic. I'm not saying that these things do not merit good Christian thinking or good Christian conversation and good parental care if it concerns your children. But I am saying that sometimes the way that we talk and the tone that we use betrays the fact that we don't actually think we live in Christ's kingdom. We think we know the bounds of his kingdom better. We think we know what he should do to protect his kingdom. And some of this comes through language. You know, even Kanye West likes to use the language of being soldiers for Christ. And there is biblical imagery of us being soldiers, but the Bible resoundly talks about our spiritual warfare as one that is fought in full knowledge that our king has already won the battle. The church is not at stake. Jesus doesn't need you to defend his bride. And I'd like to keep that imagery a little bit. Jesus is described as the bridegroom and the church, the big C, bigger than just Trinity Church, all believers everywhere are his bride. And we act sometimes as if this bride is going to stumble and fall, as if Jesus is going to stand by and say, like, well, really wish you wouldn't have, you know, let that sin in your midst. I wish I could save you. What good husband would do that? Jesus is not just a good husband. He's the best husband. He is actually purifying all sinfulness from his bride. He's actually saying, I'm going to pay for that. I'm going to bring you back to life, and I'm saving you, and the battle is already done. He said, it is finished. But another imagery that the Bible likes to use about Christ's church is that it's his body. And just reflect briefly about what Christ did and does with his body. He suffered beatings, mockings, was spit on, was hung on a tree to die so that he could save others. I think this imagery should teach us something about his interaction with the world that we've already talked about, which is he's far more humble. And frankly, sometimes it embarrasses us. And the right thing to do would be like Ananias is to go to the Lord and say, Lord, I don't understand what you're doing right now. These things are scary. But instead, we try to define bounds of of the kingdom or say that, that we know better and act in different ways. And we don't represent Christ's humility in the world. We don't understand that part of Christ working in us is forming us to be in his image and, and maybe be as long-suffering as Saul himself or Jesus himself was. Now, the beautiful thing about a king who is this humble is that it reshapes an entire community and it gives us a vision for what the future holds. It's a community 
that is defined and marked by forgiveness, humility, justice, mercy, long-suffering, graciousness, kindness, self-control. A kingdom that heals the broken. That makes all things right. That is restoring all of creation. That sanctifies art and music. So that all of your gifts truly serve your king. So that he can look at you and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. It's a kingdom that is big enough for all the hurt that we've experienced to heal the deepest of wounds, to remove hate from our heart, big enough to reconcile the worst of enemies. It is big enough for you, and it is big enough for me.